following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So the alongside a motif theme goes like this. Invariably in all of our worlds, there is someone that we can walk towards and come alongside and do life with. I mean, be it the neighborhood world, I'm surrounded by my neighbors here, be it our work-related world, or be it our extended family. And, and in one, if not all of those worlds, there is someone that we can walk towards, come alongside and do life with them and see what unfolds. And I can't think of a better thing to do. Who's not to want to do this? But I think we must do this. I mean, as disciples of Jesus Christ, you know, a working definition of a disciple is to become like Jesus. It's not to be Jesus, but it is to become like him. And when you read the scriptures and you read the gospels, Jesus is invariably walking towards people. So my, uh, my call, my charge, if you like, is to, you know, walk across the street and walk towards a neighbor. It's to walk across the room and walk towards someone at work. Um, it is to, in a sense, walk towards a family member who would so appreciate doing life with us. So this is what we're basically going to talk about this morning. And by way of starting, I'm going to share a story and then I'm going to share a, a scripture and then I'm going to ask you a question. So stick with me. And the story goes like this. It concerns a young woman by the name of Rosario. Now, at the time, she was a professor at a university. She was an atheist. She was a Marxist. Um, and also, also, she was a lesbian. And she was, you know, one day preparing her, um, her lectures and she had the TV going on and she suddenly heard, you know, emanating from the TV, this, this, this voice that basically charged feminism uh, uh, as causing all the ills in the world. Now, this is, I've got a quote, and this is basically what this person said. So a very right wing, if you, if, if you don't mind me putting it this way, capital F fundamentalist Christian. And basically, he, with a sneering voice, he says, feminism encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. I mean, this is one of those kind of strident, uh, rude, hate-filled, reductionistic, simplistic statements. Uh, should never have been said, should never have been said this way and that way. I mean, if you're going to make those kind of comments, they should be nuanced and carefully uh, explained. But this particular preacher didn't do it. Well, she was so incensed. And so she decided to push back and she decided to, you know, write a, 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 an article pushing back on those claims and get this article published in mainstream Christian um, denominations and so on. And that's exactly what happened. And then she waited for, you know, the barrage of letters 
So, um, so knowing that they would come in, she got two tissue boxes and she emptied them both and she placed one here on her desk for the sympathetic affirming responses and she placed one empty tissue box over here for those uh, letters, you know, hard copy letters or emails um, that would come in and strongly, fundamentally disagree with her. And so the correspondence came in and she got one and uh, got one that was affirming, got one, didn't like what I said, another one didn't like, didn't like, didn't like. And then she got a reply from Ken and Flo. And she read this letter and she couldn't make up her mind whether it went here or whether it went here. And she just didn't know what to do with it. I mean, it was intelligent, it was people honoring, um, but they basically disagreed with some of her argument. But it, it wasn't, their disagreement wasn't stated in an angry, hate-filled manner, um, in a reactionary manner. She, so she didn't know where to put it. So she screwed it up and she threw it into the round filing cabinet, the rubbish tin. But during the course of the day, she couldn't quite get she quite couldn't quite forget what Ken and Flo had said. So at the end of the day, she retrieved the letter and she unraveled it and read it again. And then she noticed that at the bottom of the letter, Ken and Flo had said that, you know, you are most welcome to come and have dinner with us. And that was the only letter that actually invited her. Um, so she went, she, she took them up and she went to their place and, and get this. You know, over the following seven years, they jumped into each other's worlds. I mean, she jumped into the Christian world of Ken and Flo, uh, went to their place countless times for meals, went to their parties. But Ken and Flo also went to her parties and had dinner at, at Rosario's place. They read each other's books and this lasted for about seven years. They did life together. And then after seven years, uh, Rosario turned to her lesbian lover one Sunday morning and said, you know, Ken and Flo have been inviting me to their church recently. I think I'll take them up on that invite. So went to their church. And for the following five years, most Sundays, Rosario was at that church. And then after five years, and this is mysterious, but after five years, in the church, attending the church, her heart was opened and she saw, if you like, the resurrected Lord with the eyes of her heart. To cut a long story short, and not everyone's story is like this and not everyone's story needs to be like this, but she actually fell in love with a Presbyterian minister and they got married. And so today, Rosario Butterfield serves in a church, you know, serves from the pastorate. And um, she's written a couple of books, A Most Unlikely Conversion. That was her first book. And her second book is called uh, um, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. In other words, she's picking up on this whole theme of, you know, to be a disciple, it's about doing life with other people, including neighbours. Come in, neighbour. The gospel comes with a house key.
It's a great story. So I want to read now another fantastic story, and this one from Luke 15. And um, Jesus told the parable of the prodigal, the father and the younger son. I mean, picking up in verse 11, once there was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to the father, Father, give me my share in the property. So he divided up his livelihood between them. Not many days later, the younger son turned to his share. Oh, sorry. Not many days later, the younger son turned his share into cash and set off for a country far away where he, where he spent his share in having a riotous good time. When he had spent it all, a severe famine came on that country and he found himself destitute. Verse 15, so he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field fields to feed his pigs. He longed to satisfy his hunger with the pods that the pigs were eating and nobody gave him anything. He came to his senses. Just think he said to himself, there are all my father's hired hands with plenty to eat and here am I, starving to death. I shall get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I don't deserve to be called your son any longer. Make me like one of your hired hands. And he got up, and he went to his father. While he was still a long way off, a long way off his father saw him, and his heart was stirred with love and pity. He ran. He ran to him hugged him tight and kissed him. Father, the son began, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I don't deserve to be called your son any longer. But the father said to his servants, hurry, bring the best clothes and put them on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the calf that we've fattened up, kill it and let's eat and have a party. The son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Such a good story. Now, li listen, friends. I mean, if I was with you in person, you know, I'd be hitting the pause button and I'd be saying to you, what's the common commonality between the Rosario story and Jesus' story about the prodigal son, the two sons and the father? And then I'd be asking you to... Talk amongst yourselves. Turn to the person next to you and ask them, you know, so what do you think is the common theme between these stories? I mean, you might even like at this point to pause, if you can, this um, this video and, and have that discussion. So I don't know where you, where you got to on that question uh, or, or what you think is the commonality, but let me share with you what one of the things that I see. You see, in this parable, the most striking thing is the father. And the father runs to his son. Now, in the first century AD, as some of you will know, uh, an honorable person did not run. Actually, when you think about it, in the Gospels, we have no record of Jesus running at all. I mean, to run, you know, an honorable person with status in the first century would have had to lift up their robes and, and therefore, you know, run the risk of showing bare skin. And, and you just didn't do that in the first century. But here we have the father running. Now, why does he run? Because he knows 
that as soon as his son gets to the village, the villagers will more than like, or some of them, will more than like do the son harm because the son has shamed the father. And the father knowing this, I mean, that's what that was a custom in the first century. And the father knowing this races to the son to get to the son first before anybody can do him harm. And, you know, when I, I understood that, I thought, you know, in this parable, we are to become like the father. And we are, in a sense, to become runners. Or if you want to stick it with the theme that I'm um, unpacking, we are to become those who, you know, quickly walk towards others. But we are to run, to walk towards others before others and the world do them more harm. Be it a neighbor, be it someone in our work world, or be it someone in our extended family. And of course, this is something that I've already said, I think we must do. Not should do, but must do for their sakes. And of course, this is what Ken and Flo did. In their own way, they quickly responded to Rosario. You know, they, they wrote a letter and, uh, and another response of theirs was to invite her to dinner. So in a sense, they walked towards her. Now, uh, if I was to ask the question, you know, do you do this? Are you a walker? Do you cross the room, cross the street, cross the the suburbs to get to a family member. I mean, do you do this? Now, I think most of us would like to think that we do. And without wanting to be unkind, I actually think that oftentimes we don't do this. And, and I wonder, you know, why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons, maybe some of the reasons why we don't do this, is deep down, we know that we're not that we kind of fear the encounter, actually, with a neighbor, with a work colleague, with an extended family member. We fear the encounter. And, and why do we fear the encounter? Because deep down, we know we're not good at this stuff. You know, deep down, we know, and I'm not wanting to be unkind, but deep down, we know we haven't got the skills uh, to do this stuff. I mean, deep down, we know we lack confidence. Now, if it's any encouragement, I want you good people to know that, you know, when I started out as a disciple, and I could see that we must do this sort of stuff, you know, to become like Jesus, but I, I knew I was no good at it. I mean, you know, when I started going to church, um, you know, I, I became a, a, a disciple in my early 20s. And when I started going to church, I sat in the back row. Because when I sensed that the service was about to end, I mean, I got out of there quickly. I mean, I was scared of people. I mean, I was shy. I mean, I was introverted, you know. But if someone nailed me at the door, got me before I could flee, you know, and engaged me, and so I was in one of those encounters, near encounters, you know, um, my upper lip would twitch 90 to the dozens, you know, as a symptom of my anxiety, I mean, of my nervousness you know, of my shyness, you know. I mean, so you might see me now on this screen 
and think, oh, surely not. I mean, look at this person, you know, um, gift of the gab, you know, has got a bit of a personality, um, can speak clearly. Yeah, but this is four decades plus later. Um, so when I began a disciple, I feared these near encounters with stranger, with neighbor, with, you know, as well, even family member. So, so I thought, you know, what, are, you know, if deep down I know I'm not good at this stuff, well, then I just realized that I had to get good at this stuff. And so I began to become a learner. I mean, disciple in the Greek, mathetes, carries the idea of being a learner. And so I thought, I've got to learn how to do near encounter with neighbor, stranger, and so on. And so I thought this would, would require learning certain skills. I had to learn them. They weren't in me. They weren't embedded in me. They weren't natural to me. I had to acquire them. I had to learn them. And so I've learned over the decades multiple skills. You know, I've had to turn off the TV to learn new skills. And then I've had to go out and practice them. And this has been you know, for the last 45 years. So I've had to grow in order to go. Now, I've, I know that sounds a bit cliche, but I've had to grow in my skills in order to go. Because as I grew in skills, I don't know, the confidence to go came. So this morning, I, I've, um, time allowing, I'll just see uh, time is running away. I just want to briefly share uh, three skills. I mean, hey, I could share 25 plus. Time doesn't allow me, but three. And the first, the, the first is, you know, to be at your, the skill of being at your cerebral best. The second is the skill of being at your conversational best. And the third is the skill at being at your compassionate best. And of course, I shared some of this stuff in the seminars that I've already mentioned. So first of all, the skill at being at your cerebral best. And to begin with this, I want to share a story, a brief story, and it goes like this. It's not true, but there's truth in the story. There was this monkey um, dangling um, precariously on a branch, and below the monkey was a river in flood, raging waters. And the monkey spotted a fish in distress. So the monkey, being of kind heart, scooped down and, um, you know, scooped up the fish and went to dry land and laid the fish out on dry land. And of course, the fish showed initial signs of excitement and then panic. But the monkey, as he looked at the fish, you know, the monkey just felt so good. You know, the monkey had been of kind heart, good intention, had rescued another species, if you like. And of course, when you think about that story, you think, you know, the monkey may have been of kind heart, but the monkey was totally ignorant about the needs of the fish before him. And you see, when I initially read that story, I thought, you know, it's so easy for us Christians to be monkeys. Again, not wanting to be unkind. But, you know, we Christians are well known 
for being people of good intent and well known for being, you know, kind hearted. But are we also like the monkey, totally ignorant about the real needs of a family member, of a neighbour, of a co-worker? Because you see, these people that I've mentioned, what they want to know is whether you know, whether you know enough about their stuff. And if they sense, because they pick it up, if they sense you know, they will gravitate towards you. But if they sense that you're just a person of good intent and kind heart, but you don't really know that which they face in life, they will begin to make a hasty retreat from you. So when I recognized that, you know, I could be like a monkey, I thought, well, I don't, I want to change. I don't want to be that. So I started just two little practices to become more of a wiser, knowing person. So for example, if I was at the dentist waiting to be drilled and there was a magazine on the table in front of me, I flicked through it. And if I saw it, for argument sake, an, an article, I don't know, on depression, and if it was good, you know, I'd rip it out. I mean, the magazine's for the public. I'd rip it out and I'd get home, I'd get a manila folder, I'd place it in there and I'd put depression at the top right hand of, uh, you know, top corner there. And it got to a point, you know, where I was starting to build up folder after folder on many different topics, the very issues that people out there face. I mean, for example, I've got one here and this one, this manila folder, as you can see, um, is on doubt. And um, I've got a few very good articles in there on doubt. Um, another thing that I began to do was if I was reading a book and I saw some really good stuff in that book, whatever the book is, that, that could help me, you know, kind of to love the Lord and to love these people with my mind, then what I would do is I would create an index at the back of the book. So here's a book on doubt and just to prove that I'm I do this stuff so here is my index and so if I'm reading this book and there is something that I I don't want to forget that because you know what we think you know that is so good I'll never forget it but we do then then I I note down the topic and um and I put the page number at the back of the book and you know, there's something on war here, page 111. There's something on cynicism here. Um, people out there face that. Page 127. There's something on, um, um, uh, let's do another one, suffering, page 26, on death, on uh, atheism, page 20. So you get the idea. And then I would then get a white card and say, like, I mentioned something on cynicism. I put cynicism at the top right hand corner. I put the author's name, the title of the book and the page number. So as a result of doing this for now, years and years and decades and decades, you can imagine I've got hundreds of manila folders, some online, some physical folders, and I've got hundreds of index cards, both physical and uh, online. So. I do my work, my mental work, in and around the issues that people face. Um, some of you um, are going to say, well, Mac, you know, you know, we're not all academic and we 
not all of us have degrees and so forth and so on. Look, people, I started doing this when I was a factory worker making glue. It was the only job I could score after being expelled from university. But I started as a factory worker doing this mental stuff. And some of you are saying, but Mick, I'm not a reader. Well, you must become one. Jesus was a reader. You must become a reader for the sake of others. And you'll say, but that's not in my personality. You're not to be led by your personality. You're to be led by the task. So that's the first one, cerebral best. The second one, to, um, to skill up in the area in terms of being your conversational best. So very briefly, people, look, when I started out, as a disciple, I'll never forget the day the pastor of the Baptist church that I was going to at that time, the pastor, he said, Mick, I want you to come into my office. So I did. He sat me down. And no sooner had I sat down, he said, Mick, you're dead useless at relationships. That's what he said. I mean, way back those days, you know, it was called the art of truth telling. And he was telling the truth. I knew deep down I was dead useless at relationships. I was dead useless at conversations. I was a dead useless listener. I didn't know how to do conflict. You know, I couldn't pick up on what was really being said. I couldn't put my own thoughts into a coherent kind of manner. And maybe at this point, some of you are thinking nothing much has changed, but I just knew I, I was dead useless at relationships, at conversations, but I didn't want to stay there. I mean, Jesus was a good conversationalist. He was a skilled one. He was a crafty one. He was a subversive. He was subtle. He was clever. Even Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, you know, to do this stuff, you know, I am a master craftsman. In other words, you've got to have craftiness. You've got to have cleverness. You've got to have competency in this conversational stuff because out there, a family member, a neighbor, a work person, they want to know whether you're a safe person. And they can, you know, they have these antennae, if you like, and they're trying to sense, you know, are you a good listener or do you just want to do all the talking? And can you de-escalate conflict or will you escalate it through what you say? You know, are you picking up on what I'm struggling to say? I mean, they're wanting to know whether you're safe. And so when I realized, you know, I was dead useless at being at my conversational best, you know, I did the work on, I did the mahi, I did the labor. And I began to read books on how to be a better listener and how to do conflict and I went to seminars and I went to people who I could see were good at this sort of stuff and asked them what were their tricks of the trade. I mean I really upschooled. So thirdly, to be at your compassionate best. Um, look I'll, I'll tell a, a brief story, true story, arguably the most famous uh, fiction writer in Australia is Tim Winton. And Tim Winton was being interviewed on uh, TV and, and, and the interviewer said, Tim, I believe at age five you went through a traumatic period in your life. Could you tell us that story? And so Tim proceeded to say that, you know, his dad was a copper 
uh, on a bike, you know, is a motorbike copper. And one day he was involved in a very serious accident such that he was reduced to being, um, so this is his dad, reduced to being in a coma for weeks on end in hospital. But eventually he came to, and when he was fit enough, they uh, got him into an ambulance and returned him home. And Tim was seated in the in the lounge and as he was brought in the front door and initially Tim thought, Who's, who is that? Because his father was all bent out of shape, you know, and um, black and blue, as it were. And um, But he could see that it was his dad. And they all stood there stunned and shocked. But uh, his mother also was left with a whole bunch of questions and needs. And um, one of these was, how can we get our man to the bath? And he was a big man. So she, you know, and then one day, several days later, there was a knock at the door. She went to the door, she opened it. And there was this Aussie bloke, you know, and he said, G'day, my name's Len. And I, I hear you're in a bit of bother. Is there anything I can do? Um, so I've been practicing my Aussie accent. <laughs> and she said, well, yes, actually, Len, there is. I, I need my man to be bathed every day. Could you come round, you know, pick him up, literally, take him to the bath, bathe him, towel him, clothe him once a day? And, you know, yeah, she, she'll be right. <laughs> so Len, Len said, no worries, you know. And so that's exactly what he did. And every day he came, Tim and the rest of the family, including his mother, just looked at this compassionate deed being done but it was done in a certain way you know Len wasn't drawing attention to himself Len wasn't trying to you know I mean Len he was a member of the local Baptist church but he did it in a way that it wasn't about Len you know he had he had learned how to do the dance of compassion and there are steps in this dance but he had learned and so when T Tim got to the age where, you know, most people begin to explore spirituality, you know, or religion, faith, etc. Well, he chose to because of what he had seen in Lan many years earlier. His parents began to attend that Baptist church. The point being, friends, is that there is a skill in being in doing good deeds. And good deeds, you know, they promote the gospel. I mean, good words proclaim the gospel, yes, but good deeds promote the gospel. But, you know, I don't know about you, you see some people doing good deeds and, ah, it just doesn't smell right. It doesn't seem right. I mean, you know, it can be all about them. You know, it's a bit showy. It's a bit, I don't know. But you see other people like Len have learned how to do this stuff. And you know, I wanted to learn how to be at my compassionate best, if you like. And so I've kind of begun to learn that dance. Here's the thing. None of this stuff comes natural. You know, you've got to learn it. You've got to learn how to do this stuff. And I started that learning, as I've already said, decades ago. And because I did the grow, I now do the go. Uh, with neighbour, with work colleague, 
with extended family member. Honestly. And I've been doing, walking towards, if you like, running towards these people now for decades. Uh, and so has Ruby. And this is what a disciple does. Now, if you self-define yourself as a Christian, you know, as a Christian, you can have all the morality in the world. You know, you can be free of this and free of this and free of this, you know. Morality is good. You can be free of lying, free of, I don't know, pornography, free of, you, know, you can name a thousand things. And morality is part of being a Christian. But if that's all you have, just morality, then you could still be a really terrible disciple. Because you see, there's another M word. And that M word is mission. And to be a Christian, to be a disciple, you need both M words. Yes, morality, but also mission. And mission, a part of that, is walking, running towards neighbor, work colleague, extended family member. Especially those within those three worlds that, I don't know, somehow other people might not like them. Maybe they are dislikable, um, unlike, no, dislikable. Maybe, I don't know, they're awkward. Maybe they've done something and they're shamed, they're shunned. But there is someone in one of your existing worlds that you must walk towards, like the Father, run towards, before other things in this world do them harm. But to do that, you have to I don't know, you have to learn how to do it. So as to not cause them damage. I mean, you have to learn how to do this material. It doesn't come natural. So my, my ask of you is this. I mean, will you turn the TV off and do more learning time? Intentional learning time or after this presentation if you like will you you know go back home or oh, you'll probably be in your home but go and grab a cuppa and watch the talent i mean i've learned that to be this laborer to be this disciple you know you gotta in a sense say no to a thousand things in order to say yes to a few things and this is one of those things, walking towards, running towards, and doing it well, that on that day, Jesus will say, tell me your stories. Tell me your neighborhood stories. Tell me, tell me your work stories. Tell me your extended family stories. And some of us with Jesus will be doing high fives. But some of us, who didn't do the mahi, who didn't do the labor of learning, 
and therefore have few stories. I mean, come that day, it's almost like we will walk to the back of the room, embarrassed, and lower our eyes and not be able to look into the eyes of Jesus. Don't be one of those. Become a high-fiver. Learn the art of how to do the near encounter. Let me pray. Our Lord, these are difficult days and we have to learn how to do COVID days. But there will come that time again when we will be able to walk towards neighbour, work colleague, and family member. May we not fear those encounters. May we have confidence. Help us to learn how to be a walker and a runner and to do that near encounter well. Help people at Shaw Community Church to reflect on what I've said and to decide to be a learner, no matter the cost, no matter what. Help them to make that decision, I pray. In your wonderful name, amen. Amen, friends. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.